Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday afternoon. It's not that long for Shabbos. But because I have some commitments to do two or three things on Sunday, I'm going to see if I can get one done now so it'll be out by Sunday. Especially, uh, this is the request of Stefanski family, who is our number one friend of the podcast. And so let me, uh, I'm going to say something about the Shalom. Let's call it the Shalom part one. Uh, that's, how, that's how I do it. And the reason that he mentioned that to me, besides Stefanski, is because they have a uh, auction house, you know, and it's out of my league, but they have an auction house and um, Genazim, G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M. If you're interested, go look it up online. G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M. They have a new catalog. They're having a big auction on December 28th of all kind of extraordinary things. I don't know where the heck they get these things, you know, like it's an original thing from Moshe Armeno, or in this case, um, it, really, if you go online, you'll see, and maybe I'll talk about it next week in other other examples of what they have, simply because it's something that interests me as well. But one of the things they're offering over here is a safer that belonged to the Shlach. The Shlach Kaddish. Not the book Shlach. That was written after the author's lifetime. But he had a, a, a certain picky of us, and he's got writing in it. And he's got notes and things like that. And uh, it's starting at a mere $100,000. That's all. So if you're a descendant of the Shlach, and many are, and you've got big bucks, this is something you're going to be interested in, uh, because of one of the most famous people, as I'll tell you in a second. Um, there are many other items in this catalog, which is online, and I'm going to get it, uh, what do you call it, in uh, hardback form. If you're at all interested in anything I'm saying, I'm, try I'm, I'm more than happy to uh, help them out. Um, if you're interested in this and you want a catalog also, just send me an email. That's all. I'll tell them they'll be happy to send out catalogs. Um, but you know, the, and not everything costs a hundred K, but, uh, they have original things from all these famous Rabbanim and whatever. It's, uh, it's crazy. 1500, 1600, 1400s. I don't know how they got this. 1400s. I think about in Canabula. Um, so because of that, um, so he asked me to speak about the Shlaw, which I've always avoided because Shlaw is a very complicated safer to me. Not to others necessarily, but to me. But what I want to do today is like part one and talk about the author. And that I know much better. Um, so we're all talking about the, the Shloha HaKadosh, as they call him. Uh, which is funny, because I remember seeing this long ago in a book by Agnon. I'm not into Agnon's uh, novels. I'm glad I like, but Agnon never just uh, never interested me. Not a Galatiana. And... But he has a safer called Safer Seeper Basofer, which is chit chat um, and gossip about Sfarm, which is really wonderful, fantastic. And I remember looking at it years ago, and I remember they said like this. And somebody must have said this, obviously. He said, There's three Sfarm, three books in, in the history of Claudius Roll, which had pretentious titles. Okay? And um, 
even though the authors were great men, but they, the, the titles they chose for their books were pretentious. And uh, therefore, in popular parlance, the pretentious titles, titles never took off. But like Puk Chazimayam Adover, in popular parlance, the Jewish people resorted to different ways of referring to the books as circumlocutions. One was the Rambam, one was the Shlon, the other one was the Alshach. That's what he said. The Rambam wrote a book, as we all know, called the Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah? Really? Mishnah Torah? You have a second Torah? Really? Now, I know what he meant, and you know what he meant, right? But it's a pretentious title, so nobody uses that title. You never hear somebody say, I guess, I saw a kasha in the Mishnah Torah the other day. There's a steer in the Mishnah Torah. I confirm for a Mishnah Torah. Instead, people say, the Rambam, right? You get it? In popular parlance, over the last thousand years, people say, I guess, I saw a Shver Rambam. Nobody says I saw a Shver Mishnah Torah. That's that's one. The second was the Alshech, Ramosha Alshech, who was a fantastic safer. And it really is. But he called it Torah's Moshe. Really? Torah's Moshe? Really? Moshe Rabbeinu? You know, what a Torah's Moshe? And nobody's going to say, I guess, I saw a, a, a great vart on the Parsha Sishavu and the Torah's Moshe. People are thinking, I mean, the Chumash. And so the Velt, Never calls it the Torah's Moshe. They call it the Alshech. I saw a great word in the Alshech. I saw a kasha in the Alshech. You see? Notice the popular parlance. And the third one is our hero today, Rabbi Horowitz, from Europe and then in Palestine and in the 17th century. And he called his book, as we know, Shnei Luchos Abris. That's the name of the Sefer. Um, Shnei Luchos Abris. Really? These are the two tablets of Moses? Shnei Luchos Abris? I mean, again, that's a pretty pretentious title. And so the Velt calls it the Shlaw. <laughs> you see? That was, that's what he wrote in the Sefer. But it has to do with the fact that it's a very famous um, classic. and Although it was published after the, the author's death, which is also interesting. And um, that's what I wanted to say a few words about, because that's who this whole autograph business, if you want to get the autograph for... Uh, those uh, big bucks, um, you'll uh, see it. So the Schlaw is, so I, I, like I said before, I always hesitated to do it. Since he asked me yesterday, and I want to do it for Shabbos, so I had to devote some time to it today to think about it. I hate to do that, but I had to put some time to think about it. And I'm going to share with you uh, my thoughts. The Schlaw is a is an outstanding example of the rabbinical elite. Here's somebody who lived approximately from 1560 to 1630, maybe 1558, doesn't matter. So that's, in other words, 70, he was 70 years old, maybe a little older when he died. That's a long time, fairly long, um, in those days especially. And um, he was uh, um, an outstanding example of the rabbinical elite from the golden age of Poland. I mean, you know, it's a perfect example. And the Ashkenazic rabbinic elite. So I'm talking about people who are big rabbis, big Rosh Hashivas, and millionaires. Okay? Um, you had like that then. Perhaps you do in other times. Not not so much. But in the what we call the golden age of the Jews in Poland, which means the 1500s and early 1600s prior to Chemelnitsky, prior to the Xeris Tachbatat, when the Jews had it pretty good. So there, it was possible to uh, live a whole life at the very top of society, dealing with other elite members, 
and, you know, living the life of Riley, even though we wouldn't be talking about if he wasn't somebody who was a Godel Batorah and Godel Beira and so on and so forth. Okay? So our hero was born, I think, in Lublin or Lemberg, doesn't matter. They don't know for sure. In um, in the fifteen middle 1500s. Like I say, the late 1550s, early 1560s, the time of the Ramah. In fact, his father was a student of the Ramah. So this is, again, the golden age of the Jews in Poland. <clears throat> so the Jews there had it pretty good. And you really had it good if you had money. So, uh, uh, therefore, and it comes from a Chasha family, Horowitz, you probably don't notice, is the name of a, of a town in Bohemia. <laughs> it's not a Jewish name. Horowitz just means that's a family came from that town in, in the Czech Republic. Horowitz, yeah. Horowitz. But, you know, they were a well-known family, and they were able to combine. In other words, they were high-class, and high-class meant they had Torah and and money. That's what it is. One without the other is interesting, but the two together is doubly interesting. And all of his life, he was played in that league. Now, it so happened, so in other words, he had the right father, he had the right mother, he had the right family connections, and he married the right girl, because later on he married the daughter of a zillionaire also. That's what happened. So part of the story of the Shlot is he had Targadil Makamechad. Now, he made the most of it. The Haino. He grew up, you know, like I think in Lublin, and he went to Yeshiva there. And I'm telling you, notice he, he checked off all when you talk about the Shlot, he checked all the boxes. So he learned in all the important Yeshivas in Poland. Uh, he learned by the Sma, by the Marm Lublin by some other people he never heard of, you know, Shlomo, Yehudalei, you know, let's put it this way, the elite of the rabbinic world. So first of all, this guy comes to Yeshiva, he's from a super yichah. Second of all, he's loaded. Third of all, he is an unbelievable Eloi and Masmid. In other words, he wasn't spoiled or anything like that. He maximized, you know, the whole thing. And so he becomes the best guy in Yeshiva on merit, not on yichas and, and nepotism, on merit. So he was the best guy there. So it doesn't get better than this. The guy's loaded. He's got Yichus up to here. And he is Taka, the best guy. Notice in learning. And when I see learning, I would also say in uh, Midos. Because that's going to be a very important part of the Sefer Dishlaw. You know, the the uh, pietistic side of the mitzvahs. The Musser. Um, that's one of the reasons that people like the Sefer. Um, and uh, what do you call it? And the Kabbalah also. And uh, so therefore, he, like I said, we checked up all the boxes. So a guy like this, you figure, when he gets married around, I don't know, 20, whatever, something like that, to a, 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 the, the richest girl in Austria, that's what happened, in Vienna. And already from a young age, so because he's got all this yichas, that means he's got the family network situation behind him. And I repeat, he was a bar hockey. So from a young age, he's already becoming an Av Bezdin back in Poland in the golden age of the Jews of Poland. So, you know, this town, it's, it's remarkable, by the way, and you know, he was in Dubna and this town in Krakow, and Krakow, you know, this one place after another in the kingdom of Poland. I would say he's a very, very interesting rabbinical career because he moves from town to town, uh, like a dozen places, maybe more. That's a lot in a 40-year career. Let's say from 20 to 60, approximately, because 60 things change. As we'll, as we'll see. Let's say from 20 to 60, approximately. I don't know if he became a Robert at the age of 20, you know, but in his early years. So, uh, really, he went from A to B to C to B, you know, one town after another. 
And he never left, as far as I can tell, because of Machloikas. Which therefore means that he left because they always offered him better terms elsewhere. So again, he's at the top. So it's like today, you know, there are some rabbis that they'll, you know, eat by with small salaries. And some guys play at the big show level and they get serious money, um, you know, in the salary. I mean, serious, serious money. And that's who he was. Now, remember, we're talking about the late 1500s, early 1600s. If he's born around 1560, Barak, so the late 1500s, early 1600s, this is when Poland rocked. And what I mean by that is that Kehillah's then, at that time, like you can see in the Avain Metzula, had a good share of people's money. And so Gelter was. And it was very from the culture in general, so they're Machshav Torah in a big way. I don't want to reread what I read before, the last part of the Avain Metzula, which is a book written after Chmelnitsky massacres, when the guy said, oh, you should see in Poland, the yeshivas everywhere. And learning everywhere. And even if you tell me, as some do, that it's exaggerated, and I'm sure it is, even if you cut it in half, it's still amazing. Even if you cut it in, in 60%, it's still a, a remarkable. Okay? So, um, what's the right word? Hashivas a Torah you had. And Gelt there was. It, it was the right time to live. Because later in Poland, elsewhere, it wasn't like that. But the time he lived, it was a time, you know, when, when, when money there was and the respect for Torah there was. And uh, if you, therefore, um, if you became an Avbezdin somewhere, a rabbi, so it meant, first of all, you preside over the local basin, and those, as we say today, after Pascha and Shilas, especially the hard ones. Number two, you're Rosh Yeshiva. I've spoken about this a hundred times. This is the, the era of Tofes Yeshiva. So if I became a rabbi of a town, one of the parts of my contract would be that not only is the town going to pay me such and such a salary, and such and such a parsonage, because that's what they did. But it's also that part of the deal is, if I'm a bar part of the deal is that they'll also support a yeshiva to some degree or another, which therefore means how many kids you're talking about. So they would say, for example, we're willing to pay every year for the upkeep of 20 boys, 30 boys, 40 boys, two boys, you know, whatever whatever the case is. And the more chashiv you are, and the better negotiator you were, the more boys you could get out of the contract. You see what I'm saying? And so, our hero emerges, like I said before, he checked off all the boxes. He had all the things going for him. He's married the right way. He was a bar hochi, And so he became a rub, which means wherever he moved, he could paskin. And he had a reputation as a machmer, by the way. So they didn't take him in because they thought he was a mekel. He was a machmer in general, you know, the shla. Um, for pietistic reasons, kabbalistic reasons, and so forth. But doesn't matter. He had, to, you know, like, he knows. Now remember, he is growing up Right at the time the Shulchan Aruch came out, um, he is a contemporary of some of the people that are writing commentaries in the Shulchan Aruch. So notice, this wasn't out yet. You know, the, the the 17th century, in his time and afterwards, that's when you actually saw the publication of the Shach and the Sman, and the Taz and the Mogan Avram and all that stuff. Uh, but he was living in a time when it didn't, it didn't exist yet. And so... You know, you can't just paskin with Shulchan You have to know your stuff in Shas. And he, he sure did. Now, so he goes from place to place in an Abbas and a Posik. In addition to that, he seems to have been a very talented Rosh Hashiva, known as a Magashir. So he definitely was very charismatic kind of Magashir, because wherever he went, he, it was a big Yeshiva. In these contracts, the community would agree to pay for so and so many boys. And for the rest of it, he'd have to raise their money or something like that. Now, it's very famous, 
that his son says after he died that the father, when he was a Rosh Yeshiva, he basically, um, he fed the Yeshiva. In other words, he, 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 um, he lived a high style. Um, he said there were never less than 80 people at the table every day. That's crazy. In other words, sometimes 100 people. If you get 100 guests, that's nobody's house has room for 100 guests, even in the Muncie, you know. Uh, it means that they had some kind of a yeshiva dining hall situation of some sort or another. And uh, he ate with the boys. I mean, it must be his family and everybody. And the point is, he could afford it. Because first of all, he was loaded. And second of all, his wife was loaded. And third of all, when you're loaded at that level, you know other gvirim of your madrega, and they're more willing to give to a guy like you than to some little poor leper. Even though logic might be the other way around, you know, you don't need it, he needs it, but they feel more comfortable speaking to somebody from their class, from their gvir level, you understand? And everybody knew he's not wasting a penny. This is not a person who's a phony. He's learning 24-7. And it's Nigla plus Nister. But, you know, but the boys don't learn uh, Nigla. In his Sefer, in the Shlob, it's very interesting. I don't know if I have time for it today. He talks a lot about the styles of learning. He's one of these critics of the contemporary Yeshiva system with the Pilpa that he didn't like of a certain type. But on the other hand, there are other types of Pilpa he does like. In fact, that is where you have the famous description that I've spoken about before. I don't want to get into detail now of the Augsburgers, the Regensburgers, and the... Um, and the Augsburger, Regenberger, and the Nurnbergers, the different types of pilpul that they used to do in the yeshivas of that era. Uh, and he says, you know, this kind is good, this type is bad. So, you know, he's a contemporary in morale. And he was a contemporary and an acquaintance of the Kliyakar. So the three of them together were critics of the style of learning in the contemporary yeshivas. Uh, although his students talk about him as being an unbelievable mafapel, but the word pilpul can have a lot of meanings, and one meaning could simply be lumdus. In other words, what we call today solid lumdus, and that's what he's associated with. On the other hand, it could be unsolid lumdus, let's put it that way, to be nice about it. And he's obviously criticizing that. Um, you know, he didn't have a secular education. He doesn't write like the Rambam in a very organized way, at least not to me. But the points he has scattered all over the place are quite remarkable in terms of his critiques of the contemporary Chinuch. Now, I'll tell you again. He moved from community A to B, then to C, A, B, C, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, N, O, P. Obviously, every time he moved elsewhere, A, he was in demand. So that speaks very highly. He's in demand. And B, he's not going to move somewhere else unless they offer more money. Now, I don't think it's more money to live high in the hog. Although, you should know, the shlaw of his life lived... Pretty well. You can tell from the letters he writes to his kids, all the rest of it. You know, uh, this was, if I said the golden age of Jews of Poland, it, that means it was the golden age of Polish rabbis, I mean, to be perfectly honest. You understand? In other words, as I said before, you had big virum around, and they were willing to support, if they wanted to, somebody in a high style. Now, I don't mean, you know, you live like Shlomo Melech, but, you know, a guy like this always lived in a very nice quarters, they had servants, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, what's he doing all day long? He's working at teaching and that sort of thing, and posking, you know, all day long. So he's not, like, wasting his time, you know. Um, the opposite. So it's just a very interesting model. 
So he goes to this, all the big communities in Poland, and eventually he ends up in Germany. They took him in Frankfurt. Now, why the heck a guy should leave Poland around the year 1600 or so? So that's when it was. Um, to move to Germany, the reason I say it is Poland around 1600s was rather free of anti-Semitism. Now, not entirely. Truth of the matter is the Jesuits were causing trouble as part of the Counter-Reformation, but you don't have to know that. Uh, but it was always worse anti-Semitism in Germany, in the country next to Poland, the west of Poland, which we call the Holy Roman Empire. So why would a guy want to go, let's say, for example, from Krakow to Frankfurt? Frankfurt was a small ghetto, terrible conditions, unhealthy, and so on and so forth. And yet it was very chashev. And uh, the Shalom went from, I think, Krakow, from, from Poland, to be the Roman Frankfurt. It can only be that they offered him a significant raise in salary. And by that I mean significant increase in the number of yeshiva boys that the community was willing to, to, to fund. It's got to be. Okay? Now, he may have regretted this, because during his time, when he was in Frankfurt, there was one of those periodic volcanoes of German anti-Semitism that you had every once in a while. It's called the Fettmilch uh, pogroms. The local Germans, under this guy named Fettmilch, I don't want to go into all the details, launched a pogrom against the Jews, um, destroyed everything, and so on and so forth, and the Jews were out of Frankfurt for a year until the Holy Roman Emperor, Matthias, I think it was, sent the Imperial Army back in and killed the guy Fettmilch for his own reasons. In other words, he wasn't only a pogrom, it was sort of like a little bit of a, a left-wing revolution for the 17th century. Uh, but the, the, the point is like this. It's, it's the opposite of what you think. Usually you think the farther west you are, the safer it is. For Jews, the farther east they were in Poland, the safer it was. But, you know, he he made that choice. And he was, as I said before, the Avbez and the Rav of the Yekis in Frankfurt in the 17th century. And Rosh Hashiva there. And they always pride themselves in having Godel Adores Rosh Hashiva. And they certainly had one with him. Okay? Uh, but when he had this anti-Semitism violence breakout, so he said to heck with Germany, and, well, I shouldn't put it that way, he said to heck with Frankfurt, and he moved to Prague. Well, Prague was an even bigger city, and it was actually capital of Germany at that time, capital of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, once again, you know, his successor, the Tosas Yantav, had trouble with the rich Balabatim in, in Prague. Not our hero, he was on their level. They felt totally comfortable with him. You get what I'm saying? He thought like a rich man. He knew how to handle with them. He didn't have to machnef them. And the result was that they gave him a lot of money. And so he had a big Nechashev Yeshiva also in Prague, which always was a big Makam Torah. And he was the robe of the city. But then something happens. Usually in the biographies, they explain it one way. And I'm going to explain it the way I understand it. Um, here's somebody in his 50s who left Frankfurt because of the pogroms and moved to Prague, where there was law and order. At least he hoped there would be law and order. And Prague is very chashov, okay? Uh, and it has a long tradition of learning. Matter of fact, uh, what's his name? Ryaka Pollock moved from Pollock, Prague to Poland to set up Poland as a big Makam Torah. So Prague had this uh, prestige. Um, but in 1620, they say his wife died, and then he said, I'm moving to Israel. Well, in 1618, 
Let me let me check something out. Hold on a second. Yep, I was right. When he came to Prague, he would jump from the frying pan into the fire in a certain sense. Because the 30-year war was about to begin. And he was the Rav in Prague when the whole business started. Most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. There was something in Germany in the Holy Roman Empire called the Thirty Years War, which turned into like a Holocaust for the Gaian. And it started with arguments between Catholics and Protestants in Prague and in Bohemia. And right and and nearby was a major battle, it's very well known, the Wittenberg, the uh, Battle of the White Mountain, where the Catholics crushed the Protestants and wiped them out and took away all their land and this and that and the other. And so it was, I mean, they didn't go after the Jews, that is true, but it's not like you got the feeling, oh, now we finally came on Menucha Bala Nacho. The war started in 1618 and didn't end for 30 years till 1648. And so I'm sure the figure like this, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Uh, Prague would be besieged a number of times during the 30 years war. And anyway, it was high tension. Uh, as it happens, the two sides, the Catholics versus the Protestants, were so busy killing each other, they really didn't bother the Jews that much, which is interesting, but I'm sure he didn't know it at that time. And his wife died in 1620, right in the middle, of, right just before the Battle of uh, Prague, just before the Battle of the White Mountain. And so, in my opinion, this must have influenced him in several directions. One is, I'm in the middle of a war zone. Number two, maybe this huge battles that are just commencing now, and you could tell that they're going to get bigger and bigger, maybe this is some variation of the Gogomogo. That's my opinion. You understand? Because he's very from and very from and a great intellectual. And so if you're very from that way, in a Torah way, you can interpret, it's not surprising to interpret things with the lenses of a Goro, which are different than your lenses and my lenses. And there was always a Jewish business that the year 40 is a Messianic year. So, because the year 40 is the year one, you know, by what the guy called the year, like Tav Shin was 1940, you know what I mean? So, uh... Uh, 1640 was 20 years away, and there was a big feeling among the Jews that this is really the Mashiach time. The Mashiach will come 1640. That, my friends, is why Shabbat Shalom took off, because you know it was around that era. Okay, that's how Shabbat Shalom took off, and so the result was, you know, because he was a little bit later, but it was you know the Messianic business was in there. There was a big movement in the year 1840. Just take my word for it, uh, or don't. <laughs> so. He um, said, like this, I'm making Aliyah. His wife died. That had a big rush on it. He knew if he tells his kids, he writes this, they'll stop him. It's very contemporary. So he got remarried because you're not allowed to go in Israel as, as, as a bachelor. He's the type of person, like who is a Munkatra, so I guess you're not allowed to live in Israel unless you're a, a, a super duper. You understand? Now, remember, the person I'm describing is among the greatest Russian Shivas of his time. It's funny because most people don't know it. You don't think of the Shalom that way simply because that's not what he chose to write. If he In the in the 17th century, it wasn't yet a time of fashion to write uh, Pnei Yeshua's. That's from the 18th century. The Pnei Yeshua Tzlach, the, you know, the, the Hafla and all that. And you write Kiddushim Monshas. Uh, 17th century, much less so. If you ask somebody what was the, the type of forum published in Torah learning 
in the 17th century? It's an interesting question. It's mostly uh, the, the Lomdis is on the Halacha Lamaisa. So in other words, all the famous commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch and the Tor are from the 17th century. Um, you know, the, the Bach, the Shach Nisman, the Taz, and the Mogan Avram, and the other one on Chosh Mishpah, I mean, on the, uh, you know, whatever it's called, Chalkas Machokek, and all that, uh, you know, on the, on the Ebenezer. You see what I'm saying? All those famous books were, the, the style of learning to publish it was on either Shulchan Aruch or, or something along those lines. Um, to write the Lumdas itself wasn't fashionable for certain reasons. So therefore, you don't know what I would say like this, Chidushe Hashlaw, or Shas, or Pilpuli Hashlaw. But he was that type. Notice he was up there at the top. See, he was, you know what I mean? Notice he was one of the three or four biggest Ashkenazi Lumdish Rabbonim in his day. And I'm talking about the 17th century, first day of the 17th century. That says a lot. You know what I'm saying? That says a lot. Again, he was a big posig. It's all a matter of mazel. He never did, or his children never did, publish his shalos and shubas. That would make people look at him in a different way. Although he had plenty of shalos and shubas. So look what, look how a person's reputation in history depends on what they lucked out or didn't luck out in terms of publishing. I told you before, his rabbi was like the number one lamdin in Poland. You never heard of the guy. Uh, they used to call him the second marshal of Shlomo ben Yehuda Leib. How do I know he's the second biggest? Because all the people contemporary write about him. The Shlaw writes about him all the time. He says, I follow his psach, I do his minhagim, this and any other. You never heard of him, because simply, if he didn't write a safer, you never heard of him. If the Shlaw hadn't been published by his kids, you never would hear of the Shlaw either. You'd just be some, like I'd be talking here off my head, and you're saying, he's an important Polish rabbi in the 17th century. Well, duh, so what? You know, I mean, I know. Out there is just another name to people. You have to connect it like with a book, or something like that, or a very specific historical incident. Uh... So he was on that super level. He had an inter I just want you to understand, he had an international reputation for Lumdus. Okay? I just want to be clear about that. And he was money. And also he was in the Kabbalah. Now I'll talk about that in a second uh, in, in a second. Uh, and so he decides he's gonna make Aliyah. For some reason, in the early sixteen twenties, which is what we're talking about, I'm talking about the year sixteen twenty. So this person would be about 60 years old, maybe 62. Okay, so, you know, so you can already hear, like I said, tell the kids, you're all married, you're all different place in Europe, you're going with your life, I'm moving to Israel. Hey, I hope the Mashiach can be, there's unbelievable um, merit to living in Israel, who can deny that? And see, and this is very interesting, this I got from different writings of his, he, because this is very contemporary. He was a rich guy, but what does that mean Somebody who's a tremendous chassid, I'm using the word chassid in the old sense, chassid and makobal, and you're rich. You don't look at the mominous in a materialistic, consumerist way. You look at the mominous and say, so oh, with this I can do more mitzvahs or have a bigger yeshiva, support more boys, you know, provide three meals a day or two meals a day for more boys because they have the wherewithal to do so. Um, he lived a makovatical life. But he was turned off by the other people of his social class because they were too materialistic. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. You get it? You know, rich people, it's not easy to be the type of person I just described. To be very wealthy, but
but not think in materialistic terms. It's just normal that people start saying like this. Oh, I got a lot of money. I want to have a better house. Put uh, uh, secure the, the future of my children. Uh, my wife needs the extra jewelry. Uh, you know, all those sorts of things really turned him off. So he's the type of guy that would be like, what's the expression? Me to say stopkus. You know, you live, as we would say today, a bobatisha life. Nothing wrong with that. You know, lo chaser davar, but not, you know, like mishpachan ami with the fancy. Uh, what am I talking about? The, the the advertisements for steak and and, and you know and ribs and so forth, you know uh, the the latest uh, material pleasure, the fanciest uh, uh, Pesa hotel. In his day, he was really turned off because the rich Jews bought a lot of real estate and they built themselves big houses. Whoops, sounds like a marriage. And he's like, yeah, and and you know, you'll say like this. So what you live in a hovel? There's a difference between big fancy schmancy house and a hovel. And you know, he was a real firm guy. And so therefore, what? You're building a big place in Prague, in Frankfurt? In other words, you don't believe the Mashiach is coming tomorrow. Because if you did, it would be a bad investment. You see? So you're just paying lip service to it. Now, that's a perfectionism, but that's who he was. And therefore, instead of being like other members of his economic class and social class, it made him get really turned off to life in Gaulus and therefore really yearn to live in Eretz Yisrael. In the 17th century, it wasn't so simple. Now, it so happens, and I'm not sure exactly why, a bunch of Ashkenazic Jews from Italy, from Germany, from Poland, right at that time, who were able to, made Aliyah. Isn't that interesting? So when the Shlaw arrives in Eretz Yisrael, he's actually going to be part of a wave of people, maybe not as rich as himself, but nevertheless, you know, uh, able to make, able to afford Aliyah, and who want to settle in Yerushalayim. And uh, uh, this lasted for three, four years, as we shall see, until a bad Muslim governor came and screwed the whole thing up. So if you're talking about 1620 and 1621, things are looking great for him in, in this regard. His kids don't want him to leave, but he says, I'm going. Uh, you can't, his wife died, he remarried because you're not allowed to live in Eretz role unmarried. So that's a, that's a madrega for you. You hear what I just said? You, you can't live in Israel unless you're a tzaddik and you, you know, are a chassid. And one of the things you have to do is you have to be married. So he remarries at the age of 62. Um, I don't remember who the second wife was, but I'm sure she had money too. And then, for a reason. And then he makes Aliyah. How do you make Aliyah in those days? Well, you travel from Prague to Venice. That's uh, doable, right? From Prague to Venice. And then you, the Venetians always had like a, a shuttle service to Palestine or to Syria. That's what Venice was. They used to run these shuttles. Uh, I'm talking about ships. Uh, I'm actually talking about triremes, you know, where they used to pull the oars. Um, and the Venetians, if you know anything about the... First of all, they had an empire of their own spoken about before. So the whole coast of the Adriatic from Venice down belongs to uh, to Venice. And then at that time, part of Greece. And you go to Crete or something like that. And then you go right there to Israel. So in other words, you're never far away from land for a long time. And um, you hug the shore. And that way you're always not far from food and replenishment and that sort of thing. That's how you did in those days. 
I think he tells his kids a very famous letter he wrote, which is in Yaris. Uh, really, everybody should read it. It's, it's 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 just very well written. It's very very interesting, and it's the letter he writes to his kids once he arrives in Eretz Yisrael in the year sixteen twenty one, around Rosh Hashanah time or a little bit later, around the time of this year over here, right? And if I remember correctly, he was uh, uh, twenty two days at sea or something like that. Yeah, Tchafei Twenty-two days in sea. So now I want to repeat: this is how a millionaire makes aliyah. This is not like the Ethiopian or Russian Jews or Persian Jews running away and you know being glad to to escape to Israel and living in terrible conditions in the Mahabara and all that kind of business. This is how an American Jew today makes aliyah. <laughs> right? This is a, the the only difference is now you have airplanes and the guy, the family can buy the place before they moved there ten years before you know, and they can afford it. In his time, it wasn't quite like that, but by the standards of the 17th century, he made Allianz style. Um, so he went to Venice. Uh, now, by the way, he got screwed by the Venetians. He writes this in a letter on money changing. You know, when they switched the, the money from this currency to this currency, he got cheated. That's why he writes to his kids, don't ever change your money in Venice. Instead, take your original cash with you, with you and sew it in the linings of your clothes. Old Jewish style, you know. Uh, so the the people in the ship and the gun won't see it. Anyway, he travels to Venice. From Venice, he go, and they take it as to to Syria or to Tripoli. Now this is not the Tripoli in Libya. It's the Tripoli in what you call today Lebanon. So it's northern Lebanon. You 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 can understand what that is. Not too far away from Israel. But he writes to his kids that while the when he gets closer to the shore. So I told you the ship used to go hug the shore along the Adriatic and then around the Grecian Islands. But then the last spurt, you have to make face from like roads to Tripoli or Cyprus to Tripoli and you're in the open waters. That time, there were always wars going on in, in the Far East and pirates were everywhere. And his ship got attacked by a pirate ship. The only thing is they ran away. And he says, Hashem helped them that his ship had wind in the sails and the pirate ship did not for some reason. And they escaped. Therefore, they couldn't land where they wanted to land. And they ended up going to Aleppo, which is not too far away. It's north. It's more north. So here's somebody that's going to make Aliyah in unusual fashion. Why don't you just sail to Yafo and get off the get off the ship? But that's not how he did it, right? Instead, he went, as they say before, to northern Syria to Aleppo, and then he traveled on land through Syria down to Israel. It's an interesting mahal. And in order to do that, he had to get used to riding a donkey. And again, he writes to his kids, he says, I never read a donkey in my life. I fell off, you know. Uh, me, myself, and I, yours truly. I was once or twice in Israel when I tried to ride a donkey. I fell off right away. You got to learn. But he said, I, he saw Hashem help me, and I learned how to ride a donkey. And so here you see the shlaw riding in style uh, on a donkey all through Syria, little by little, to get to Eretz Yisrael. This a trip I'm describing costs a fortune. You get it? The average guy can't do what he did cost a fortune. Now, he didn't have endless money, but he had a lot of money. And he says he spent a lot of money on the trip, him and his wife. Uh, what's interesting is, his reputation had preceded him. And even though he didn't publish a safer yet, but people knew who he is. He's one of the Gedoli Ashkenaz. So they basically said like this, Byron Cutler is coming here. Devil Nagon is coming here. Something like that, you know? Uh, this guy, Shia Horowitz, he's a big rabbi in Poland and Germany, but Ashkenazim. And he writes that when he came to Syria, 
he got covered Malachim, you know, in Aleppo. And he, if you know the Shloyas, he's he was, like I say, not, he was very yeshivish, but he's also like the morale, you know, you have no Ivrit, you have no Tanakh, you know what I mean? Um, the the Haredi Haskol, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, you have to notice it. So in other words, he was able to communicate with them in Ivrit. Uh, maybe in his Ivrit, but you know, and uh, so he could give drushes in, in, in Aleppo, and later on he moves, goes south to Damascus, and everywhere he goes, he's greeted with the biggest covet. So people basically heard of him, even though they never published anything. That's what's just interesting to me. And when he, by the time he gets to Damascus, so, you know, he already has a letter from Tzvah saying, please come and live in Tzvah and make it the Rav Rashi of the Ashkenazim. We'll give you 50 ducats a year, which is a nice salary and a parsonage and everything will be fine. And you know, all that was good. But then he gets a better offer from Jerusalem, which is where he wanted to go. And they say, we'll give you more money. And anyway, see where I am. And come, come, come. And he goes to Shalim. They were fighting over him who should get it. It's, it's, it's very flattering. He even says to himself, he says, listen, it's, it's just very flattering, you know. Um, these are letters we have he wrote to his kids. Uh, and on the way, he sees all these kvarim. Some of these kvarim are real, some of these not kvarim are not real. He, he says, I remember this. He said, well, I was in Syria and I found the, the, the kever of Yocheved. I never knew she she lived all the way to make it there to Israel. Yeah, you know what I mean? In other words, they said there's a, you know, there's there's a um, stick with graves. Not even the Frum say all the graves they say are real. But, you know, but he must have gone for it. Uh, and he lists off all the farm he visited. Uh, and he gets this fast and then finally makes it Yerushalayim. And he, uh, let's be clear over here. He became the Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi Av Bezdin and Rosh Hashiva of the Ashkenazi community in Yerushalayim. That's what he was. So in other words, he had everything. He was in Krakow and Vilna and this place and Posen and I don't know, you know, Lemberg and this and so forth and then Frankfurt and Prague and even Yerushalayim. You see what I'm saying? So in other words, he must have been an extremely impressive individual that all these communities were, 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 were fighting over him. Because what I'm describing didn't usually happen. You understand? Did not usually happen. Uh, so, so far, great. Now, I want to say this. It was big in the Kabbalah, back in Europe. He's a contemporary of the Arizal, or let me put it this way. I think the Ari died, if I remember correctly, in 1572. Uh, so our hero would have been about 14 years old. Something like that when the Ari died. Uh he leaves for Israel in like 1620, 1621. Well, guess what? Chai died in 1620 in Damascus. So notice he showed up in Damascus not long after the death of Chai was the Arizal guy. Uh, when Dari died, so uh, a few of his students, Rishol Saruk very famously, went to Europe and they started saying over his stuff. But within the inner circle of the Arizal types, that was wrong. And uh, you're not allowed to do that. And he didn't get it right. And so, I don't want to get too technical now. Maybe we'll talk about that in part two. 
But there were different versions of the Luriana Kabbalah around. Uh, but, the, the, but the works of the Ramak, Ramosha Cordovera, had actually been published in Europe, in Venice, uh, during the lifetime of the Ramak, uh, Ramosha Cordovera. So he, these are the two, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, these are the two big guys in Svas. Let's put it that way. Ramosha Cordovera and then the Ari. And uh, uh, the books of Ramosha Cordovera were published, therefore circulated, and the uh, Shlaw had a big library. You know, he was that tight. Why not? And, and we could afford it. And he was into, very heavy into Kabbalah, which was just beginning to penetrate into Europe. See, he's from the early years when the Kabbalistic ideas in printed form, the published books of the Ramak, or Moshe Kodavir, are actually beginning to circulate. That's the door that he grew up in because he was born around 1558, 1560. And so I hope I'm not confusing you, but you know, this one Kabbalah starts to penetrate into Ashkenaz Jewry in a, in, in a big way. And he was a major person in that regard. And uh, in general, I would say, you know, because the Shlom, when he published the Sefer, is going to shoot to the top of the charts. You see, there was a big thirst for Kabbalah. Um, I think it had to do, in my opinion, I think it has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, Gamar, Gamar, Gamar takes you so far. That there are some people that you can spend your whole life um, just learning Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. To tell you the truth, that's how I was raised when I was a kid. That's, you know, that's fine. You know, more power to you. But some people say, yes, but why am I doing this? What's the real reason behind it? And they're not interested in my Monodian, Aristotelian thing. That, that's a turnoff to them, you see? They want, what's the real reason behind that? And the deeper, and, and so forth. And the spiritual. And how is it that I feel connected with Hashem when I'm doing this in this mitzvah, you know, I have to go with somebody now to do um, uh, Hilch's Nido. Uh, you know, whatever. And I told the guy, I said, listen, I'll, I don't have time to go through all the, I'll give you the basic, I'll, I'll teach you the halachic side of it, but not the hashkava side. And this guy complained to someone else, a friend of mine, and he said, not complaining against me, but he's saying, you know, I want to, Oh, oh, why are we doing all these things in, in Taras Mishpacha? You, you understand? Well, he's right to ask that question. You know, inquiring minds want to know, why do you do this? And the only deep answers won't be the philosophical ones, but to be the mystical ones, you see? Um, and, uh, you know, it was a thirst for it at that time. And he was very much part of this. So he knew in Europe that he was getting... How should I put this? 50% perhaps of the Kabbalah. But the other 50% is from the Ari, and this was kept within a tiny circle in Eretz Yisrael. One of the reasons he wants to move to Eretz Yisrael is to advance his Kabbalistic knowledge. I'm sure, so he'll be ready for the Mashiach when he's coming in, in five minutes. So, I mention this only because he makes it his business on the way to Israel as he's passing through Syria and he stops in Damascus right after the death of Chaim Vital, who had written, when I say written, I mean hadn't published, on purpose he hadn't published it, just in manuscript form, you know, the Eitz uh, Chaim and all these other sorts of things, which are all we know today about the Rizal. Because the didn't write anything. So everything you get, if you go by party line now, if you go by Orthodox Judaism, all you get is from Chaim Vital. And, you know, here's our hero, who was definitely a Bar Hachi, and he goes to the son of Chaim Vital, and he said like this, 
let me see what your father had in his writings. And he shows him because if you're a Makobo, especially in those days, it's only for the few. It's not for Hamunam. Well, guess what? The Shlaw is one of the few. He's the biggest Ashkenazi rabbi. He's a giant in learning. And he knows a heck of a lot of also. And he's a chassid in his lifestyle. So in other words, he is one of the few. Like if Dari knew him, he would talk to him too. That kind of thing, right? Because he was that level of Rosh Hashim, of Rav. And uh, so now he comes there to throw arms with the new uh, Arizal business. The Lurianic stuff on top of what he already knew. He ends up in Yerushalayim. Um, now, everything should be great. He even says, you know, they offer him a lot of money. He said, I moved to Eretz Yisrael. I don't want to take a salary. I never felt comfortable in Europe taking a salary. Now, he took it. <laughs> he did take it. He said, never felt comfortable. You know, like the Rambam, you know, who says you shouldn't take money being a rabbi. I never felt comfortable with it. You know, it, it makes you very mercenary. Um, and certainly in the Avira, the Kedusha, Eretz Yisrael, no rabbi should take a salary, you know. Uh, the only thing he said was like this. The Turks who are ruling going to charge a lot of uh, taxes. So this is Talmudic now, that the community can pay his taxes. That I'll take from you. And also a, a parsonage, you know. He says, I'm married. I have to think of my wife. She wants to live in a Bukovic away. And so on and so forth. You know, not a high in the hog, but, you know, Bukovic away. And they say, fine, they'll do it. So he gets a nice house and so on and so forth in the Jewish community, which I believe was, uh, you know, where the uh, Rova is today. And uh, when he comes to Yushalayim in late 1621, right around this time of the year, I think it was Parshas Vayetzi, if I remember correctly. And uh, he says something along the lines, this is going to be Gavaldic, because in 1621, 1622, 1623, and, and four maybe, uh, it was all good. People were moving to Israel a lot. Ashkenazim and Sephardim from all over the place. And there was really a feeling in the air, this is going to be the new Zionism of the 17th century, that just a lot of Jews who moved there, and, and that itself will bring the Mashiach. You know, you understand? In other words, not in a active political way or something like that, but it's going to, you know, B'Shavu Banim Likvulam. Jews who moved there, the Arabs will be there too, of course. But if plenty of Jews moved there, that'll create a new Messias. And he foresaw being, oh my goodness, the Rosh Hashiva. Uh, and by the way, he says, these old Sephardi rabbis, they said, we heard of you, we would have come listen to your shir. That's very impressive, you understand? They themselves are Magad Shiras. So we want to listen to your shir, just give it not in Yiddish, you know, in, in Ivrit. So he was really looking forward to that. And he'll have life of Riley over here. And for a short time, he did. So imagine, you have the Shlaw, and now he's in Yerushalayim. And he's the Rav, based it, at least of the Ashkenazim. And he lives in a decent place. He's got, a, uh, I'm sure, nice quarters or building to give a shit like a Shiva building. And everything's going the right way. All you need is the Mashiach to come tomorrow. Everything's going the right way. And he that's where he was writing up the Sefer Shlaw that we all know, the Shnei Luchos Uh He said he wrote it for his kids, like an ethical will or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure that's true, but, you know, there's a history of Swarm where a guy starts and says, I'm writing for this, but then it grows like Topsy. You know, an ethical will should be 20 pages. There's like hundreds of pages, you know, 
Because I know how it is. Once you start writing, you, you add this, you add that, and he knew everything. Call it, he knew call it Terakula. And uh, he ended up writing it in such a way, composing in such a way, that it was very attractive and it took off to be one of the most famous farmer of all times. But that's after his death. I'm just trying to tell you, here's a guy in the 60s, 60s, uh, not over the hill yet, and uh, he's Yoshalayan, doesn't get better than that. He says, by the way, the lifestyle is great. If if you have money, in other words, if, you know, not a millionaire, if you have money, you can live just as well as in Prague, and they have all the food, and the wine, and the, the papers, everything's okay. You know, he discussed with his kids about how to change the money and all this kind of stuff. There is inflation, he says. You know, that is true. But, you know, you can work around it. It's it's just, you know, you, you see he was a very practical person, among other things. And now everything should be fantastic. However, there's always a snake in the Garden of Eden. And in 1625, or 4 or 5, when things are settling in and people are moving in all the time, they got a new Turkish governor and uh, was a Palestinian and hated the Jews. And he himself was very, uh, what's the right word, money hungry. And he started screwing the Jewish community over, squeezing them, doubling the taxes, tripling the taxes. And they arrested all the rich people and held them for ransom in dungeons, including the Shlaw. Okay? And the community had to go and, uh, you know, bail him out, uh, which is why later on they wouldn't pay his widow the money that she said they owed her and uh it was a real bummer uh because you know let's put it this way here's a person that i just described to you who led a gilded life he moved in the highest circles financially and intellectually and religiously in poland in the good days in frankfurt and prague in the good days he was never in jail he was never beaten up he was never subject to persecution you know, he, he lived at the right time at the right place. And now Yerushalayim, of all places, you get beaten up because he was and thrown in a Turkish dungeon. How would you like to be in a dungeon, Stamazoy? How would you like to be in an American dungeon? How would you like to be in a Turkish dungeon? How would you like to be in a Turkish dungeon in the 17th century? With the rats and the... Oh, my goodness. So it must have been a nightmare beyond nightmares. And when he got out, he had to hide to stay in the house for four months that the Turks shouldn't see him again because he knew he was rich. And eventually, he basically, the community enabled him to sort of escape from Yerushalayim, and he ran north to Tzfat, where it was a different uh, province and different governor, and you weren't under Roshosa, this guy Yerushalayim. And he stays in Tzfat, and maybe Tveria, I forget, in that area where he dies uh, five years later. This couldn't have been great for his health, uh, but, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, plus, there were always Magafas at that time. Uh, especially the north of Israel, but all the way to Israel in general, the public health situation was what it was, and the hot summer is what it is, and the mosquitoes and all those other things are what they are, and that's most likely how he died, I mean, that, that, as I understand it. So we have here a person um, who, as I say before, always lived at the top level, but not in a grub or materialistic way. Uh, the top level of the best of the Torah world. I hate to use that. It's such a it's such a cliche of the rabbinic culture. Let's put it that way. But not just as you know, uh, most rabbis were not on his level, uh, you know, uh, economically, and uh, probably also intellectually. But you know, 
your other gedolim in the 17th century. But, you know, he had, a, like, a very interesting path in life. Uh, and his kids remained behind in Europe, you know. There, there you were. So, as I said before, uh, if this was the end of the story, so, uh, it'd be just an interesting story, especially the part of the Aliyah. But his... It, it, I want you to understand, while he's in Israel, for example, in Yushalayim, a place like that, He's in constant correspondence with people all over the place in Europe. These big rabbonim, the top level, they were the opposite of Garrett scholars who only know what's you know, like only know what's going on in their local shtetl. The big gedolim always, by definition, as you can see in the Shalos and Chubas literature, were always had their finger on the pulse. They always knew what's hocking all over the place. Uh, rabbis in in Bohemia knew about wars in Turkey and vice versa, because they come up with shilas and things like this. And a guy like we're talking about must have been a, 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 a successful investor, you understand? Because he talks about how to invest the money properly. So he was a very good business person in addition to everything else. He didn't only live on his salaries, although his salaries were fine. He had capital and he was always investing, like the Gemara says. And so he's very shrewd in this particular regard. Uh, he's honest, but he's very shrewd in this particular regard. And he always knew what's happening all over the place. And therefore, he always was able to master the communication system of the 17th century. Therefore, he was able to send the manuscript of the ethical will that he sent to his children, and they were able to publish it eventually as the Shnei Luchosibris, as the Shlaw. And because the Shlaw is such a from safer and took off, because it has this combination. I like the way Noah Shavrik told me yesterday, he's the, my Kabbalah expert, because he actually knows what he's talking about talking about, unlike many. Uh, it's just a nice combination of halacha and musr and kabbalah. Okay? Um, I'm not doing... I'll, maybe I'll talk about it in more detail another time. But uh, because of this, so uh, they made his reputation. Because they were able to get the Ksaviyad, Um And I think the publisher in Amsterdam, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the Schlaw took off. Uh, because this Sefer became one of the most popular and, uh, you know, everybody had it. Even though it's always seemed like a jumble to me in the funny principle of organization, but that's not how Claudius Roll saw it. You don't agree with the word I just said. And uh, the style, as I said before, of explaining the why of the mitzvahs and the Kabbalistic reasons behind them and the musr there makes somebody feel that when I'm doing Yontif, or now, they, if you look at Hanukkah, you know, that's what he calls his section of the holidays, Malkanika. You see, you know, you got all the Gemaras, you got all the Midrashim, but then he has, you know, the meaning of the or and all that kind of stuff. If you're looking for classic meanings in a very pietistic way, what can I say? The Shlow has always been a super popular favorite. Anyway, it's going to be Shabbat soon, so I'm going to close this door down right now. Uh, and if you're interested in anything connected with this, just go to Ganazim, G-N-A-C-Y-M, uh, if you're a Shlaw person, uh, and there are there's a whole cult of Shlaw people, and uh, you'll take a look at it for yourself. Meanwhile, I get get race. I wish everybody a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com 
www.rabbidavidkatz.com.